0: Father, thank you for the work that you're doing around the world. Uh, you are amazing. Uh, we pray for clarity and discernment as you uh, have let us, please continue to lead us. As we get into your word tonight, I pray that your spirit would be our guide and our teacher. Take what is yours, please, and make it ours. We ask all in the name of our wonderful, matchless Savior, Jesus. Amen. Okay, the book of Job. (laughs) Oh, yeah, thank you, Job. The book of Job. Oh, first, I I had this. I don't think I've shown you this before. This is kind of fun. Uh, Pictures of Jesus in Genesis. So here's some more, The, the characters that we looked at. Abraham, who's the royal heir who left the comforts and privileges of home, to go to a place he'd never been, living there by faith. Isaac, the promised, self-sacrificing one. Jacob, the one who blessed his family. Joseph, the forgiving and gracious ruler. Uh, Interesting little pictures of Jesus in the characters, even way back here in Genesis. Little pictures of Jesus. Okay, that's... a. That was from Genesis. Here's Job. Medals of honor. Um, Anyone in the military here? Okay. Usually I have one military person, and they see these, and they go, I can tell you all about those, and that's always fun to hear from them, so I'll have to tell you about them. Um, Our country honors its special battlefield champions with the medals of honor. We've just... Veterans Day was last week, thank you veterans. But the Medals of Honor, this is how we as a country honor those who have distinguished themselves on the battlefield. The Medal of Honor is the United States of America's highest and most prestigious personal military decoration that may be awarded to recognize U.S. military service members who have distinguished themselves by acts of valor the medal is normally awarded by the President in the name of the Congress. Because the medal is presented in the name of the Congress, it's often referred to informally as the Congressional Medal of Honor. However, the official name of the current award is Medal of Honor. Within United States Code, blah, 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 there are three versions of the medal, one for the Army, one for the Navy, and one for the Air Force. If you're in the Marine Corps or the Coast Guard, you receive the Navy version should you qualify. The President normally presents the Medal of Honor at a formal ceremony in Washington, D.C., that is intended to represent the gratitude of the U.S. people uh, with posthumous presentations made to the primary next of kin. According to the Medal of Honor Historical Society of the United States, there have been 3,522 Medals of Honor awarded To our nation's soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Coast Guardsmen since the decoration's creation, with just less than half of them awarded for actions during the four years of the American Civil War. So, the Medal of Honor, you know, what's sometimes certain soldiers are compelled to step up and step out in extraordinary ways, uh, even unto death, for the benefit of others. They choose to endure unmerited suffering. And because of their love of country and cause, we honor them. A recent example Uh, In 2004, Corporal Jason Dunham saved the lives of his fellow Marines in Iraq when he smothered a grenade with his helmet and body. He was posthumously given the Medal of Honor in 2007. There are certain men and certainly certain women who seem on the battlefield to be compelled to give their lives for the benefit of others. And they are honored for it by our country. They receive, in a sense, or they have um, given distinguished service. They've distinguished themselves on the battlefield, performing above and beyond the call of duty in war against the enemy. You undoubtedly see where I'm going with this. Some saints are called by God to do life on the battlefield, above and beyond the regular call of duty in the war against the enemy. They are called to serve... As God's weapons and God's witnesses. They exhibit distinguished service. You say, What? What does it mean to be God's weapon and God's witness? His weapon against Satan as you read in the first two chapters of this book. And witnesses to the angels, believers, and unbelievers alike. And you say, Bill, show me that in the Bible. I'd be happy to. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. You need, we, sometimes we just need to regain perspective on what's going on down here. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Paul in chapter 3 is, of course, talking about the mysterious plan of God and himself. Um, He says, beginning in verse 8, Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he, God, graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. Verse 9, I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What did Paul just say? that the angels are looking down from heaven on you and me to see how God treats us and how we respond to God. And we are his plan to show them who he really is and what he is really like. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. (laughs) Everything you say and everything you do here is a weapon against Satan and a witness toward who God is. And as Paul said, the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. The privilege that we have is on display for heaven. You say, what? What's the one thing that angels could never have seen about God? We talked about this when we did Genesis. They couldn't see his grace, his unmerited, undeserved favor. And so he said, I'm going to pick a race that's lower than you, you angels, and I'm going to show them who I am, and they will voluntarily love me and worship me and follow me. And he said, In doing that, I will show you something you've never seen about me, and that's my grace. Ephesians 3 9 and 10. The grace he showed Paul is the grace God is showing to the church, which is made up of you and me. We are on display, we can be used as his weapon and his witness in this war against the enemy. Never forget we are in a war. You are living during wartime. Right? It's kind of easy to forget. We go to other places around the world, it's a little more in front of your face that you're in the middle of a war because you see what war kind of looks like. We see it far less over here. But just go overseas, you'll see it very clearly what the war kind of looks like. So in the same way that certain soldiers distinguish themselves on the battlefield, sometimes God asks a saint to do the same thing and to serve as his weapon and his witness against the enemy in this war. Sometimes, God steps aside and calls an ordinary saint to become his extraordinary spiritual champion on the battlefield. I want to let that sink in for just a second. God is perhaps already called one of you in some, some fashion that I don't know about or may call one of us. An ordinary saint to become his extraordinary champion on the battlefield in the war. This is Job's story. Job is called into battle And never knows it. He never knows what's happening behind the scenes. You and I have the privilege of the New Testament. We have an idea of what's happening. I didn't say it made it easier. But there are times when God asks a Job or one of us to distinguish service on the battlefield. I've titled this, or I've sort of subtitled it, Unmerited Suffering. Did Job do anything to deserve this suffering that he encountered in chapters 1 and 2? No. This is unmerited suffering. Some of you, and some of you know others who have encountered, if I say it this way, merited suffering. I mean, you, you did something stupid, you whatever, whatever, whatever. You, the suffering that came to you might have been merited. You you deserved it. What Job got was absolutely unmerited. And sometimes God asks one of his saints to do the same thing. Our story takes place in the land of Uz, not the land of Oz, the land of Uz. We don't know where it is, but many scholars would suggest it's right kind of in that circle somewhere. So it's close to Canaan, it's close to the promised land in that sense, you know, so here's here's Israel over here. So it's close to that, but it's not that. Um, Job is in the line of Shem through Terah, through Nahor, rather than through Abraham. I know you remember all that from Genesis. Remember that? Okay, good. Remember, you can't forget anything. So he's in the line of Shem. uh, And we have to come to grips with the fact that Job is a Gentile. What? I thought Abrahamic covenant and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel and yes all of that is still true but yet very early on many people believe Job was actually the first book written in the Bible I don't know maybe it was we cover Genesis first because Genesis predates some of the things in in Job but Job may have been the first book written And so it was at a time when this is all still forming. And so Job seems to know quite a bit about God, and he seems to live a very godly lifestyle. Who? Who is this book about? It's about Job. Job is unknown outside of this book, although he's referred to in the Old Testament a few times. His name means much persecuted. (laughs) Pretty good name. And he, whoever wrote this is probably an eyewitness of what happened. It's possible it's one of the four friends. Friends, in quotes. But we don't know. When? Unknown, again, but likely during the patriarchal period, probably during Jacob's lifetime. So while Jacob is running around in Israel and in Haran, Job is in the land of Uz, living out his godly life. Where, again, we don't know. Why? Why was the book of Job written? Many people believe, to answer the question, why do the righteous suffer? Why do the righteous suffer? There's a problem with why. The problem is, There's no resolution. (laughs) If Job is trying to address, the book of Job is trying to address the question of why the righteous suffer, no answer is ever given. If you've read the book of Job before, if this is your first time reading it through, sorry, spoiler, there's no answer to why the righteous suffer. So there's a problem with that. So the purpose likely has something to do with an answer that God did give, And that is how God deals with men. How does God deal with men? You say, what does that mean? How God deals with men is not according to a theology of compensation, but a theology of sovereign grace. We'll get into the compensation theology next time. But suffice it to say for right now we in the United States embrace a theology of compensation. You say, "What? I'll sing this song for you again in 2 weeks." It's in our it's in the songs we teach our children at Christmas time. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. What does this guy do? He sees you when you're sleeping. Creepy. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been. So be good. For goodness sake. Why? Because Santa Claus is going to compensate you. ...for your good with goodies. He's also going to compensate you for your bad with... ...this is the theology of compensation. It's in our little nursery rhyme things. Because we not only believe it's true about Santa Claus... ...we believe it's true about God. Who's standing... ...Santa Claus is standing in the place of God, right? why we sing the songs to the kids. It's not because we believe in Santa Claus. It's because God's watching you and you'd better toe the mark. Because if you don't, he might whack you and give you some coal. And every person who's listening to this now and next time and who's listening to this on the podcast, right now ought to be, if you're not going to nod your head physically, you're nodding your head on the inside. We all believe in a theology of compensation. God rewards those who do good and he punishes those who do bad. Job is written, perhaps the first book of the Bible, to refute that's how our God treats people. How does he treat them? According to his own sovereign grace. I would suggest to you that the right question to be asking about the book of Job, is this. Here's what the book of Job is trying to address. How should the righteous respond to unmerited suffering? Not why. How should the righteous respond to unmerited suffering? Answer, by embracing it rather than seeking to escape it. I understand this is not a very popular lecture. On iTunes, it's rated very, very low. <laughs> but I believe this is why the book of Job was written. To teach Job, to teach the people in the Old Testament, as well as to teach us in the New Testament, how should the righteous respond to unmerited suffering? Answer, by embracing it, rather than seeking to escape it. That is not a popular American evangelical idea. And it does not fit with a compensation theology model. I understand. Yet I'm going to stand my ground. How should the righteous respond to unmerited suffering? By embracing it rather than seeking to escape it. We're going to go through this in three lectures. Tonight is number one. We'll go through two and three. And by the end, you'll be nodding your head saying, that's what the book of Job is about. But give me three lectures to prove my point. First, let's take a very, very quick overview of Job. It breaks down neatly into three parts. There's a prologue, two settings. So if you were going to make a play of this, you would have... Uh, Let's see, you're left, we go left to right. Okay, so over here, here's the earth, right? There'd be one set created for the earth. And then over here, there's another set where there's action in heaven, right? That's chapter one and chapter two. There's some things that are happening over here on the earth, and then there's some things that are happening over here in heaven, right? So if you're going to make a play, you would have two sets, and you'd have two sets of actors, and the light would come over here when you're on the, you're uh, talking about the things of Earth, and, and over here it would turn on when you're talking about what's happening in heaven. Right? OK. So there's two settings in the book of Job. The conflict is set forth in the first chapter, but in the first two chapters. The conflict is set forth. Chapter three, almost to the end of the book, then the friends speak. And your assignment for next week, and I'll tell it to you again at the end, your assignment for next time is to read this big, audacious middle section, which is written in um, Eastern, almost Asian-style poetry. If you've never read it before, do it. You need to read, you got about 10 days, Monday through Friday twice, give yourselves a weekend off you got about four chapters a day, starting tomorrow. Four chapters a day, you'll make it. If you let it stack up, (laughs) you're going to be tempted to use the fan. Oh, I read it. (laughs) Don't use the fan. Read it. It's hard. But read it. You can say, I did it. I've read the book of Job. And if you've read it before, (laughs) read it again. You might get something else out of it this time. The friends speak in the middle part, and they go back and forth, and you go, what in the world are they talking about? I'll clear that up for you next time. It's actually very straightforward, but you have to be familiar with the style that they're using. So the friends speak. Finally, God shows up. He has a few speeches, and then the book is closed with an epilogue. In that last little section, God's counsel is heard, and there's a resolution There is a resolution in the book of Job. And it's not about why. It's about how. And so you have to, I'm giving you a big preview. This book is not about why. This book is about how. Let's look at it together. First setting we're on the earth. As the book opens, there once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz, he was blameless a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. And then we hear about his family and we hear about all the things he owns. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Here's an example of what Job would do. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their home. They would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. That is so nice. When these celebrations ended... Sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. What a great dad. Great dad. He cares about his kids' spiritual lives, spiritual health, and relationship with God. One day... The members of the heavenly court. Probably so. In the book of Job, Satan is actually a proper name, and it's actually Hasatan, which is the Satan. So the Satan shows up, and he brings some people with him. Likely angel, I mean, undoubtedly angels who fell with him. He brings a few with him. I think I might do that if I were going to show up to God too. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, the Hasatan, came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? Stop. Have you noticed my servant Put your name in that blank. I'm not suggesting you are or aren't Job. I'm just suggesting the text is teaching us God absolutely sees you and what you do and what your life looks like every day. Have you noticed my servant Job He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face theology of compensation. The only reason Job fears you and loves you and worships you is because you gave him a lot of stuff. Take away his stuff. He'll curse you to your face. The Lord says, basically, I call your bluff. All right? You may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with what he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So the Satan, the accuser, left the Lord's presence. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided, they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, I mean, what are you doing right now? While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed, and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to cry and lament and cuss God out. Oh, no. He fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. One day... The members of the heavenly court came again to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. "'Where have you come from?' the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, "'I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on.'" Then the Lord asked Satan, "'Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. And he has maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause.'" Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin, a man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, do with them as you please, the Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. Job is right now on a trash pile, a garbage dump. It's where you threw broken pottery. That's where ashes went. They went to the dump. Job is in the dump. And he's sitting on a mound of, I don't know, but he's in the dump. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. Honey, don't ever say that to me. <laughs> but Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said, nothing wrong. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. and gives their names. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. Best counsel Somebody's ever in that situation, best counsel you can give them is right there. Sit with them and keep your mouth closed. They start becoming less of his friends in chapter three (laughs) when they decide to give him some advice. What's happening here on earth and in heaven? Job is stated to be blameless, meaning he has integrity and spiritual maturity, and he's upright. His behavior is in harmony with God's ways. His conduct is righteous, devoted, and concerned, and others saw it as well. What happens in heaven? So we move over to the other scene. The light comes on over here. Satan's first accusation. Job only worships you because you've protected his stuff. He only gives to get. That's compensation theology. How'd that work out for the Satan? Not well. Not well. So he tries again. Job only worships you because you've protected his skin, meaning you've preserved his life not his health, allow him to suffer and you'll see he's going to curse you to your face. Still in heaven, the controversy is between God and Satan. Here is the big question in the book of Job. Would Job still worship God or curse him if he underwent personal Suffering. This is the question. That's why the answer is not a why, but it's a how. So, unknown to Job, God steps aside and lets Job enter the battle as his spiritual champion. Do you understand what God has put on the line with Job? It's amazing. God steps aside and he says, without Job knowing it, Job, you got this. You be my weapon, you be my witness. You become my spiritual champion on the battlefield. will Job vindicate God's wisdom and God's ways? You say, well, how in the world can he do that? Very, in a certain sense, very simply. In spite of everything, will Job voluntarily submit and worship God alone? Will Job continue to worship voluntarily. Satan was allowed to take all of his stuff. How did Job respond? Pretty well. I mean, can, you, can you even imagine this? Some of you have endured things that, are, that rival this. Some of you haven't. To go through something like this and to fall on your face and worship and say, Lord, I praise you. Thank you. I don't thank you for what's happening to me, but you are good. And you're good all the time. And I don't understand this. With all of these things, you are still without blame and good. And thank you for loving me and continuing to be good to me. Can you, can you imagine doing this in light of all these things that have just happened? That's what Job did. Satan says, take his health away. I'll show you. We find Job on the garbage dump. The question is, he's started off well. How long will he go? Will he give in? Will he begin to curse God? Satan says yes. God says, he's not going to curse me. Job is my champion. And he calls an ordinary person to be his champion to the heavenly realms. That is amazing. Back on earth, Job is blindsided by Satan. He loses his family, his livelihood, and his wealth. He loses his reputation. He loses his wife's support and understanding. Some of you have been through things and you say, if it weren't for my spouse, I don't know what I would have done. Guess what? He doesn't even have that. What is his wife telling him? Curse God and die. (laughs) He doesn't even have a wife. He is alone, absolutely alone and on the garbage dump. He loses his health. And Job, who was once pleasing to God and fruitful, feels as discarded as common garbage can't figure it out. He doesn't know about chapter 1 and 2. He doesn't know about what's happening over here in heaven. All he knows is, I'm over here, I think I was living a pretty good life for God, and the next thing I know, I'm run over by a freight train. And I don't know how we got here. That's where we open up. If you're just looking at this from the earth, here's Job. I've lived a good and decent life. God's blessed me, He's honored me. But now, bam, I'm on the garbage dump, scraping myself with a piece of broken pottery. You don't know what's happened over here. We do. What does God want us to learn? What does he want Job to learn? First, he wants Job and he wants us to review our theology. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. So if you are suffering, oh shoot, really? What does your version say? Maybe it's my version. Maybe it doesn't say suffering. Does your chapter 4, verse 19 of 1 Peter say something like suffering? Yeah, of course it does. Because the truth is, Christians suffer. You say, what? The Lord Jesus? Do the righteous suffer? Are we like him? Didn't he tell us? Things will be like they were for him, for us? Do Christians suffer? Yes. Yes, they do. What does Peter say about that? He says, So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. God wants us and he wants Job to review our theology. There are some in our country, and probably even some in our circles of influence, who believe that the righteous are always blessed and they never suffer. That is not according to the Word of God that I just read you and the example of our Lord Jesus. The righteous do suffer. Sometimes, is it merited, meaning it's because of stupid things they've done? Yes. Is other times not anything to do with them, but it's unmerited? Yes. What are we to do? What does Peter say to do? Keep doing what's right. What does Job say? Keep worshiping. The truth is the righteous do suffer. Well, if the book is about how God deals with men, and it's not by compensation, but it's by sovereign grace, What does that mean? I wrote that down. Remember John 9? Remember John 9? Anyone? Anyone remember John 9? The blind man? And the disciples say, Lord, who sinned? This man or his parents? Right? What do they have? Theology of compensation. Who sinned? This man or his parents? Jesus says, neither. This was for, to me, for me to demonstrate my glory. huh? <laughs> the, even the disciples... Listen, if even the disciples have a theology of compensation, guess what? It's something we struggle with, too. All right. Here's, here's what I wrote down. Uh, if God deals with us, or I should say since, not if... Can't make my. There's uh, a little thing not working here. Uh, if God deals with us by sovereign grace, since grace is God's unmerited favor, that's what grace is. It's His unmerited favor. I cannot demand it. I have no right to expect it and cannot become angry if he is less gracious to me today than he was yesterday, or if he chooses to favor someone more highly than me. If it is unmerited favor, I cannot demand it. I have no right to expect it, though he has given it and cannot become angry if he is less gracious to me today than he was yesterday, or if he chooses to favor someone more highly than me. What does a theology of compensation say? I've behaved well, Lord. You owe me. And what happens if something bad, you fill in the blank on bad, what if something bad happens to me? First question, why me? That's not living under unmerited favor. That's living under some kind of entitlement. I deserve or I've earned God's unmerited favor. Second, it's not fair. I know none of you have ever thought that. I've had those sinful thoughts. Why me? And that's not fair. That is living under a theology of compensation, not under grace. Under, living under God's sovereign grace, which is his unmerited favor, I cannot demand it. I have no right to expect it. And cannot become angry if he is less gracious to me today than he was yesterday. Or if he chooses to favor someone more highly than me. In the Psalms, often you'll run across a word, S-E-L-A-H, silah. It means stop and think about it. And so I remind you after saying this three times now, selah. Stop and think about this. Your biggest struggle and mine is the same as in the book of Job. We live under a theology of compensation. We don't live under sovereign grace. God's unmerited favor toward us. I do think I have a right to demand it. I think my lifestyle, my service, my, you, again, fill in the blank, deserves God keeping me from illness, keeping me from, you, you fill in the blank. God, I've lived a good life for you. I don't deserve this, and this is not fair. Any of you ever run across someone sinners like that? If you've run across me, you've run across somebody like that. <laughs> I cannot demand it. I have no right to expect it, and I cannot become angry if he is less gracious to me today than he was yesterday or if he chooses to favor someone more highly than me. Because I live under his unmerited favor. And in his sovereignty, he can choose to do with me what he wants. And you say, really? Do you recall the little thing that Peter and John got into right after the fish? Remember when Peter's restored at the end of John? And John is walking away. And it was said of John that he would not die until he saw the Lord. And Peter goes up to the Lord, hey, (laughs) what what is that that I just heard about John? And the Lord turns to Peter and says something very curious. He says, what is that to you? Uh, (laughs) Unmerited favor. What is that to you, Peter? Are you not my servant? And if he's my servant, but I want to favor him or treat him differently, what is that to you? Am I treating you unkindly or without grace? No. Woezy. <laughs> I've spent a lot of this lesson trying to convince you that we all live under this theology of compensation, and I hope you're going, oh my goodness, this is so true. Because when I live under a theology of compensation, I get angry. When things don't go my way or life is unpredictable or why did I get that disease or why did this happen to me or why didn't that happen to me or this or this or this Lord you know how hard I've served you you know how much I've sacrificed for you you know how I've spoken well of you around everybody how can you give me this for what I've done I'm exaggerating a little bit but I've said that to myself. Maybe you have too. That is not anything but a theology of compensation, and that is not how God deals with men. He deals with them through sovereign grace. Psalm 103, verse 10, a great verse. He has not treated us as our sins deserve, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103, verse 10, a great verse along these lines. This is how God treats mankind, by sovereign grace. Second, he not only wants us to review our theology, but to review our values. Fellowship with God is more important than understanding our circumstances. There are men and women, you know, who may have already gone on to glory. But the most godly men and women I have ever met are those who are facing death and know it, and know there is no hope of cure or way of escape. They have settled that is that issue. They are unbelievably joyful and ready to go. Fellowship with God is more important than understanding our circumstances. Sometimes our values get out of kilter. Let me tell you something else from 25 years of pastoral ministry. Knowing why has never healed or maybe even helped anyone. Do you know why? (laughs) Because there's always another why. Why did this happen to me? Uh, Because of this. Well, why is that? Every why leads to another why. It doesn't solve anything. It just leads to more questions. Where do the questions stop? When I'm sitting at the feet of the Lord. In fellowship with him. And whatever is happening around me is okay. Because... In the boat where he is and the storm is raging, the boat's not going to sink with him in it. it may look scary. But the boat's, he's, even, he's sleeping. Remember, he's sleeping in the boat. He's not worried. Why do I get worried? Gosh, I think the storm is going to swallow up the Lord Jesus. <laughs> you go, wow, that's foolish talk. Well, that's how we think. My circumstance is so bad. I think the Lord, he has fallen asleep. I'd better wake him up. Lord, Lord, are you seeing what's happening to me? No, gosh, I've been asleep, sorry. Lost track of you there for a second. Where'd you go? What's your name? Come on. Knowing why, not helpful. Knowing who is more important than why. Somebody asked me one time, they said, you know, if you got a a, a horrible disease, wouldn't you want to die with hope? Or sorry, wouldn't you want to die with dignity? And I said, no. I want to die with hope. I don't know about dignity. I want to die with hope. Knowing who gives you hope. Knowing why may not solve anything. It's knowing who. And the book of Job is reminding us that it's who who's important here. Not why. It's who. What else does God want us to learn or want Job to learn? That we need to trust God and embrace unmerited suffering rather than seeking to escape it. Now, I am not saying if you're sick, you should not seek treatment. I am not saying that. But I am saying embrace it. The next time I undergo unmerited suffering, I would ask... So this is the ask that you would ask, what can I get out of this? Not how can I get out of this? Because my first question is, how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? Who do I need to see? Who can relieve me of this? I need to get out of this. What happened when Joseph tried to get out of it? God said, I see you trying to get out of it. How about another couple years in the dungeon? See, we got some rough edges there we still got to work on. Remember that? We just talked about that a couple weeks ago. Joseph in the dungeon for 11 years, unmerited suffering. What's he doing for the first nine? (laughs) He's on the bars. Let me out of here. Remember me. And God says, I see that. And that's not ready. You're not ready for my purposes for you yet. So stay where you are for two years. How is he when he comes out? I hear you can interpret dreams. The Lord can. I can't do anything. Joseph is a changed man. Those last two years, the Lord left him in just long enough, and then he pulled him out. What can I get out of this, not how can I get out of this? Why should the righteous embrace suffering? Final question. Because it glorifies God's name and grows God's saint. How does it do that? Glorifies his name because it reveals our voluntary worship as God's surrendered servant. What has the Satan accused God of? You've given Job a lot of stuff and you've given him his health. Of course he worships you. Take it all away and he'll curse you. So far, Job has continued to voluntarily worship God as his surrendered servant. How does it grow his saint? Because it refines our character, Job's character, Joseph's character, as fire refines and purifies precious metal. How does it glorify God's name? It demonstrates our motivation of love for God, not compensation. How does it grow us? Because it deepens our understanding of God's character. How does it glorify God's name? Because it silences Satan's false accusations. How does it grow us? It strengthens us. It turns a saint into a soldier. You know the difference between a recruit and a Navy SEAL? A lot. (laughs) One, you would say, I'll go to battle with that fella or that lady... Any day of the week. The other, you go, you know, not so sure yet. (laughs) I'll go to battle with a Navy SEAL. I won't have to do anything. He or she will just take care of the whole thing. How did that person get to be like that? By sitting on a couch? By taking a lot of classes? By being in battle? How do we go from being just a saint into a soldier? It's through these kinds of suffering periods in our life how does it glorify God's name when we suffer rightly it affirms and vindicates God's wisdom and God's ways and it grows us because it allows us to trust and rest in God's benevolent wisdom for next time which is two weeks 10 business days, I know you get Thanksgiving off at business, but if you take Monday through Friday times 2, that's 10 days, there's about 40 chapters, about 4 chapters a day, don't get behind, you can do this, Job 3 through 37, you can make it, it's 2 weeks away, but don't let it stack up, otherwise you'll, it's tough, it's rugged. All right, I'm going to pray, and if you're available and you're a man, I need you to help me break down the tables. We're going to roll them over here, and we're going to stack the chairs up right along the side. Uh, Or if you're not healthy enough to do it, please don't don't feel compelled or don't strain yourself, uh, because that's merited suffering. That's not unmerited suffering. Don't start thinking, yes, I have an opportunity to practice Job tonight. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for... The amazing example of Job. Uh, What what an amazing uh, person he is. What an inspiration to us. What an example. Uh, And thank you for the truth that's here in your word. Uh, You're not trying to answer the question of why the righteous suffer. Uh, You're trying to answer the question of how should the righteous endure unmerited suffering. And you want us to embrace it and not try to run from it. Uh, but to worship you and to continue to do what's right. And, Father, we're really glad that you know how hard that is for us, Uh, thanks to the Lord Jesus. So we thank you. We love you. I pray for the best Thanksgiving we've all had with our family and with you as our honored guest at every table. Uh, May this be a truly wonderful week and Thanksgiving celebration. Thank you for our freedom. Uh, Thank you for the bounty that you've given to this country and to this city and to this church. We thank you. We're grateful. And we say thank you this evening. uh, And uh, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.